In the early 1980s, about 1984, 1985, I began to hear um, stories of a young, charismatic uh, rabbi uh, at the University of Judaism in Los Angeles. Now, I always had a certain ambivalence about the University of Judaism because they wouldn't let me, even though I'd grown up in a conservative tradition, they wouldn't let me go to rabbinical seminary there. I ended up at the Hebrew Union College, which is the reform movements. But I always kept an eye on what the University of Judaism was doing. And Rabbi Daniel Gordas was appointed in the early 1980s to head the Ziegler Rabbinical School. He became the dean. He was the youngest individual that anyone could remember um, who had ever been appointed to a major rabbinical program. And over the years, I followed, um, and I hope uh, he'll allow me to call him Danny because that's um, always how I've heard him referred to, as uh, Danny Gordas. Rabbi Gordas, Danny Gordas, um, had an extraordinary career at the um, uh, University of Judaism as the dean, the youngest dean of the Ziegler uh, Rabbinical uh, School. Um, he was also involved in, I think, a number of very important community outreach programs. Um, and he became, in a sense, one of the major spokesmen of conservative Judaism in the Los Angeles area. As Leonard already noted, uh, Rabbi uh, Gordas, uh, with his family, made Aliyah to Israel in 1998. Um, and he is now um, the vice president of the Mandel Foundation um, in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem. And um, he's uh, the director of their leadership institute. That's where they develop the young uh, Jewish leaders of the future. And I think uh, from my perspective, having someone with the skill, the talent, the knowledge of Rabbi Gordas in that position bodes very, very well for us. Um, he has published uh, a number of books. Um, the most recent, of course, he'll be speaking about um, this afternoon, Coming Together, Coming Apart, a memoir of heartbreak and promise in Israel. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But he's also published God Was Not in the Fire, The Search for a Spiritual Judaism, and the award-winning If a Place Can Make You Cry, Dispatches from an Anxious State, which was published in the year 2002. That book is a personal memoir of the profound changes in life in Israel during the last year and a half, and is based on his letters that originally, some of you may know, were in, uh, printed in the New York Times magazine. He has also written for a number of years for the New York Times, the New, New Republic Online, and many other news media. Uh, at the end of uh, Rabbi Gordas's um, presentation to us on his book, he will sign it. And it's extraordinary. I, I, I hope you'll let me just read. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Um, I've sort of learned to appreciate wonderful writing in English um, because of my colleagues. But listen to this. Um, he's talking about uh, a bombing that took place on uh, Bethlehem Road. Uh, it's near a place where he used to walk. And he thinks about how fortunate he is. And I want to just read you just a paragraph of this man's writing. Um, he writes um, that he would be fortunate, now I'm quoting him, 
to have been born during that slender window in time when the Jews were trying, for the first time in thousands of years, to build something of their own. Fortunate to have been alive at this critical junction in Jewish history and to be part of this experiment. And fortunate to have been born into a family that raised me to want to come here and to have been lucky enough to be able to make it happen. When you come right down to it, does anything at all matter more than being part of something like this? Um, ladies and gentlemen, let me uh, welcome uh, with you Rabbi Daniel Gordas. Thank you very much, Richard, for the uh, very warm introduction and uh, to all of you for making the time to be here this afternoon. I also want to uh, express my thanks to the Taubman Foundation for the support of this afternoon's uh, event and particularly to Leonard Wallach for the extraordinarily warm invitation uh, that I received some months ago about being with you uh, today. I recall that when uh, Dr. Wallach sent me some information about the Taubman Symposia here on campus and gave me a list sort of like the one that he gave you this afternoon but even longer a whole array of highly impressive people, and then asked me to uh, join the list by coming today, I was reminded of the Sesame Street song, One of These Things is Not Like the Others. <laughs> but um, that having been said, it was a good reminder since my kids have grown up to think about Sesame Street once again. And uh, despite that hesitation, I readily accepted the invitation because to be here on campus uh, and to be part of this extraordinary program is really a really great privilege, and I'm, I'm grateful to all of you uh, for making it possible. Of course, the world in which uh, we speak about Israel has changed dramatically since the months in which Dr. Wallach and I were first talking about this afternoon's presentation because we began thinking about it, I think it must have been May or June of last year, perhaps May. And of course, in July and August, everything pretty much changed. And what I would like, with your permission, to speak about this afternoon is what exactly really has changed. Now that the guns have been silenced, now that the frontier is relatively quiet, in what way is Israel, if any, a profoundly different kind of a country than it was before? And I would like to suggest to you that I think Israel is a profoundly different country, and that some of the challenges now facing Israel are challenges of which we've become patently and painfully aware only in recent weeks because of what happened this summer, and what I'd like to try to do with you is to suggest, first of all, what those challenges may be, and then think together a little bit about how Israel has to tackle those challenges, and then wonder a little bit about whether or not the likelihood is that Israel can be successful in addressing those challenges. To begin to address some of these questions, perhaps it's best to start our quote-unquote tour of post-Lebanon War II Israel in the town of Carmiel, where I found myself the week before last. Carmiel is a small town in the middle of the Upper Galilee, probably if you were to drive due north, maybe 10 or 15 minutes from the Lebanese border. It's therefore well within range of the Kachushas that fell during the summer. And Carmiel is normally the home to Israel's largest and most famous dance festival, which takes place each summer. And this year, the dance festival, of course, was canceled because you could not exactly have a dance festival when everybody was in bomb shelters. And it was moved to Sukkot just a couple of weeks ago when my wife and I took my mother and two of our kids. We went to the north for a few days. And our first night in the north, we went to the opening performance of the Carmiel Dance Festival. 
The dance festival has a multiplicity of venues, and at any one time there are 10, 20 different kinds of things happening. But there's one major amphitheater on the first night, the major amphitheater, in which probably 10,000 people were seated on the grass and in chairs and so forth, was the locus, it was the venue of the main opening performance, kind of like the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, so to speak, though I suspect the Olympic organizing committee would see a few differences. In any event, here were 10,000 people gathered on the grass to watch Israeli dance, young people and old people, men and women, religious and secular, people of all walks of life. It's one of those moments that you have periodically in Israeli life when you look out and you say to yourself, this is what I came for. This was exactly what I dreamed it would be when I thought of making a life here. It would be that moment in which peace would hover as literally the, the stars shone above it would be that moment we would sit on the grass, not at all concerned for our security, with people like us and with people not like us, with people older than we and younger than we, and so on and so forth. It was exactly what we hoped. And in the midst of this perfection, this rather idyllic pastoral setting for the opening of the Carmel Dance Festival, the inevitable happened, which was that Israelis started to speak. There was the mayor of Carmiel, and there was the minister of social and cultural affairs, and so on and so forth. And each made exactly the same point. Each got up and screaming louder into the microphone, which reminded me, of course, of the very famous story about the rabbi whose notes are found on the podium after services, and they see a note to himself in the margin which says, point weak here, yell like hell. So each of them, each of them yelling louder and louder as if they were going to swallow the microphone, begins to say, Nasrallah couldn't stop our dance festival, Nasrallah couldn't do this, Nasrallah couldn't do that. And I kept thinking to myself, but actually he did. The dance festival was scheduled in July and we were in October. It seemed a little bit like, methinks he doth protest so much or too much because we keep saying how much Nasrallah couldn't do. And of course, who are we mentioning more than anybody else on this night of supposed celebration was, of course, Hassan Nasrallah. There's a great irony, you know, in the Purim celebration, which is that we take our groggers as we read the Megillah and try to sound out or, or blot out Haman's name. But by virtue of that, of course, Who's, which word do we pay most attention to in the reading of the Megillah? It's, of course, Haman. So there is this very, I think, intentional internal contradiction between motivation and, and, and potential. On one hand, you want, to mo you want to forget someone. On the other hand, you're so intent on forgetting them or denying them their power that you talk about them incessantly. And I was trying to ask myself seriously, when Nasrallah had had his large meeting in the amphitheater in Beirut a few weeks earlier, had he mentioned Eld Olmert as many times as he was mentioned at the Carmel Dance Festival? And I suggest to you in all seriousness that I don't think he, w he did. I don't think Eld Olmert got that many cameo appearances, so to speak, in Nasrallah's speech, because Nasrallah's speech was a victory speech. And whatever you wanted to call it, and whatever people wanted to say they were doing on the stage of that dance festival in Carmel two weeks ago, it really wasn't a victory speech. And then it was time, after all the speeches were over, which was a very long time, it was time to stand as the orchestra played Hatikva. And we have friends who refer to these moments in Israeli life when, you know, you get goosebumps all over and that lump in your throat and you can feel your eyes beginning to water because something so powerful is happening. Our friend calls those Hatikva moments. And I thought to myself, this is, well, really mamish a Hatikva moment. We're actually going to sing Hatikva. And sure enough, they said, please rise. And 10,000 people obediently rose and um, sang Hatikva. 
But because I like to be a bit of an observer of that society that I live in, even as I live in it, I looked around me. It wasn't a rousing, spirited singing of Hatikva. It was a, a mournful, a wistful singing of Hatikva. You saw people looking up into the sky. You saw people looking down at their feet. You saw a few people holding hands. You saw people trying to believe the phrase, Our hope is not yet lost. But you also saw people not entirely convinced. There was that entire night, I thought, a kind of a bravado and a kind of a sadness. But a false bravado and a real sadness. As Israelis in that amphitheater, but really about as, as Israelis across the country, slowly but surely internalized the fact that as General Ilan Harari said to much disdain a few weeks ago in Haaretz newspaper, Israel lost the war. And we live in a country, those of us who live there, in which we are now beginning to try to come to terms with what it means to be an Israeli in the face of the fact that Israel lost the war. Now I need to point out to you, by the way, that it should not sound quite as outrageous that Israel lost this war, because in many respects, Israel really hasn't won a war since 1967, and Israel has fought plenty of them. Because in 1973, the Yom Kippur War, which we talk about as a great victory, of course, if you remember, the fighting ended at the same lines at which it started. And Israel lost 3,000 soldiers. And you figure there was about 6 million Israelis and 300 million Americans. So you would have to multiply the numbers right. I think that the numbers, you can check me afterwards, but 3,000 Israeli soldiers is something like 1.5 million American soldiers. So that if you lose that many people, and you end up right back where you started, it's hard to call that a victory. And it's true, yes, Israel got out of Lebanon after the 1982 invasion, but it got out of Lebanon 18 years later, with not much to show for it. And Israel ended the first intifada, it's true, but it ended the first intifada by going to Oslo, which I'm not at all opposed to, but you have to understand at least that in the minds of much of the Middle Eastern world was seen as a victory for the Arab states, or the Arab-Palestinian side at least, and a loss for Israel. And of course the second intifada ended with a disengagement from Gaza, which you don't have to be a radical right-winger to say these days has proven to have been at least of mixed wisdom. So the idea that Israel lost the war in 2006 may sound upsetting, but it, according to some people, is by no means the first war that Israel has lost, but it lost it in a very blatant kind of a way. Because Olmert said at the very beginning of the conflict that Israel had two very basic goals, and Israel would not stop fighting until those two goals were met. The first of those goals was to get back the soldiers who had been kidnapped, and the second of those two goals was to disarm and to dismember Hezbollah. And of course, neither of those two things happened. When the fighting stopped, the soldiers were still kidnapped as they are today. And of course, Hezbollah may have been wounded and bloodied a little bit, but at the end of the day, no one in Israel has any doubt that Hezbollah retained its most potent weaponry for use at a future date, not weaponry that it has already used. So part of the sobriety of Israeli society today stems, as I was saying, from the fact that this is a war that did not go well. It's a war that, in fact, I think, many people think, uh, we lost. I don't want to go into all the military consequences of that or the military reasons for that. That's an entirely different lecture or not our subject for today. To add to that notion, of course, there is in Israel an extraordinary crisis of political leadership. 
political and religious leadership, it must be said, to do a little quick survey, and this does not cover all the representative cases, but I'm sure you're aware the president of the country, Moshe Katsav, is about to be indicted on several counts of rape and other sorts of misdemeanors. Uh, Eld Olmert, the prime minister of the country, has been investigated repeatedly for a variety of real estate endeavors, which he, of course, claims were not at all improper, which may be true, um, but which, of course, prosecutors are refusing to drop. Dan Chalutz, who's the chief of staff of the Israeli army, was profoundly criticized for about two hours after the soldiers were kidnapped, and it was clear, at least in the Kiryah, Israel's Pentagon, that war was about to start. He simply left the compound, went to the bank, and sold 80% of his stock portfolio um, on the eve of Israel's going to war. Some people thought that might have been a, just a slightly inappropriate thing to do. Uh, last week, we had a really wonderful occasion in Israeli justice. Two former ministers of justice went on trial the same day for unrelated crimes. Uh, Chaim Ramon went on trial for kissing a female soldier against her will, and Sahi Hanegbi went on trial for making improper political appointments in the environmental ministry when he was the minister of that particular department. And, of course, I add for you that both the Sephardic and the Ashkenazic chief rabbis are under investigation for a whole host of misdemeanors and misbehaviors and so on and so forth, which has Israelis, in addition to worrying about the external side of, of diplomacy and balance of power and so forth, very much worried about what's happening to their internal leadership as well. But I would like to suggest to you that it is neither the military performance in the month of July and later on in the month of August 2006, or some of the current particularly uh, ugly political maladies that Israel faces that are the real case at hand. I had a couple of really interesting things that happened. I'll mention only two of them. Uh, which I think give you some indication or appreciation of where the mindset of today's Israeli is. I went to the doctor last week for a small cough that I had. wanted to make sure that I could actually speak today. And um, the guy that I usually see in the practice was not in that day, so I had to see the person who's on call, who I've noticed walking around the halls periodically, but had never actually been seen by, so we didn't know each other. So I went in and I explained, I'm going to California, I've got this really bad cough, I've got to be able to speak, I don't care what you put in me, just make sure it works. Uh, he told me, basically, chicken soup. And... Um, <laughs> I said, you got to go to the doctor in Israel. And um, more or less he said, well, what are you going to California for? And I said, well, I wrote this book, and I'm giving a small lecture about it. He goes, oh, really, what do you write about? And I was really not in the mood to go into a hall to do. It's not even my, my normal doctor. So I said, oh, I write about things like, you know, the future of the Jewish state, that kind of thing. He said, oh, you write short stories. <laughs> and I thought it was a pretty quick comeback, but there was something, there was a heaviness after the giggle. He said it, and I laughed, and he giggled. And then there was this very pregnant silence. And then the next day, there was an article in Haaretz, which is Israel's rough equivalent of the New York Times, um, in which uh, Robert Oman, who you may know as Israel's Nobel Prize winner in economics from last year, came out and said that he very much doubted the long-term viability of the Jewish state. Now, those are two very different kinds of stories, but they reflect, I think, a certain uneasiness on the part of Israelis about can we really make it in the long run. And that's the question that I want to begin to focus on, not the actual question of whether we can make it, who knows, not the subject for a different book and a different lecture series and so forth, but why are Israelis feeling that? What's the sense of urgency that leads Israelis to now wonder, can we really pull this off? And in order to do that, I was reminded as I was preparing for this afternoon's lecture of something that happened right after my wife and I bought our house in Israel, I guess about six and a half years ago, a year after we had moved to Israel. And we'd moved in, and uh, my wife wanted a treadmill. 
So we figured we'd buy a trailblazer. We'd have one in America, we'd buy one in Israel. It's not, the, not a big deal. So I went to the, called up one of my good friends who lived in Israel at that point for probably 20, 30 years. And I said, you want to go out for the evening? I got to go buy a treadmill. So we go to one of these sports stores that has treadmills lined up and down, you know, every different size and power and this and that. And uh, because I was still American at heart, of course, I went with my web printout from consumerreports.com, even though, of course, none of the models that they talk about exist in Israel, but that's beside the point. At least I knew what I was looking for if I could ever find it. And I looked, I narrowed it down to two or three models, and I picked up my cell phone, and I called my wife, and I said, basically, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. Which one do you want? At which point, my friend said to me when I hung up, and I'll never forget this, he said, you know, believe me, when I made Aliyah, I did not call my wife on my cell phone and ask her what kind of a treadmill she wanted. I remember feeling badly that I'd missed the pioneering phase of Israel's development. That I'd come in for the easy ride. It was 1998, 1999, everything was going well. Ehud Barak had just been elected. He had three minor goals, making peace with the Palestinians, making peace with the Syrians, and getting the soldiers out of Lebanon. Chick, chick, chock. He said, then we'll get to work on the really important stuff. We'll get a constitution. We'll clean up the streets. You know, we'll make the dance. Carmel Festival have less speeches. Really important kinds of things like that. And we'll move on. And I think, in fact, what has Israelis saddened is that I had nothing to worry about. The notion that I arrived at a time when it's now Easy Street was something that many of us believed, but none of us believe. Yes, we have it physically easier than people had it 20, 30 years ago. There are no shortages of food. There is tremendous poverty, but there's also a big middle class and a big upper class. By and large, you go into supermarkets and what you want, you can get. People don't smuggle tuna in their suitcases anymore. And you can get peanut butter, and yes, you can even get Crest toothpaste. You can get all of life's real necessities. And yet, I would like to suggest to you this afternoon, there is something about that old pioneering era that actually has to return. And it's that sense of having consciously to take an enormous step back and revisit parts of our history from which we thought we'd emerged which is what has Israeli society deeply contemplative, if not actually sad, at this particular point in Israel's history. Now, why is that? In order to understand this, I think it's important to understand that Israel, like many revolutionary societies, began as a highly ideological society. There were, of course, competing ideologies. There were secular ideologies and religious ideologies. There were socialist ideologies and more right-wing ideologies. There were militaristic ideologies and pacifist ideologies. There was ideologies of Jewish sovereignty. There was an ideology of a binational state. If you ever look at Arthur Hertzberg's classic work, the Zionist idea, it is basically 150 pages of introduction, which is, I think, the single most masterful discussion of Zionist ideologies in their in their full amalgam, and then the rest of the 1,000 pages of the book are small little snippets of representative works of any of these great ideologies. But the society was, at its core, a profoundly ideological society. If you were to ask people what they were fighting for in the 30s, or the 40s, or the 50s, or the 60s up to 67, they could have told you very clearly it was post-Holocaust Jewish life. It was post-Holocaust Jewish revival. It was Jewish sovereignty for the first time in 2,000 years. It was the rebirth of Hebrew culture. It was the rebirth of, of art and music and the novel in a language which 150 years earlier, virtually nobody on the planet spoke. 
It bespoke the idea of Jews returning to the stage of history, taking their future into their own hands. People would have said it in a variety of different kinds of ways, but there was no doubt in anybody's mind that what was happening in Israel was revolutionary. It was changing not only what happened in that particular part of the world, it was changing Judaism, because it was changing the Jew. Now, there were different images of what this Jew had to emerge to be. No question about that. Not everybody wanted the same sort of Jew, but that we were changing the Jew, that was clear. So I remind you, for example, that in 1904 and 1905, after the Kishinev program, Chaim Nachman Bialik wrote the famous poem in the city of slaughter, Be'ir Ha'arega. When he describes one horrific scene, it's a fictionalized scene, but he describes it as real, in which the Cossacks come to town and in which the men in a cellar, as their wives and sisters and daughters are being brutally raped, hide behind these slatted doors and wooden caskets. And after the attack is over and the Cossacks have fled, leaving the women bloodied and butchered on the ground, the men gingerly step over the wives of their bodies, run outside and go to the rabbi's house and say, Tell me, O rabbi, is my wife permitted? Now, it didn't really happen, but that's not the point. It was Bialik's way of saying that what religion in Eastern Europe has done to the Jew is that it has emaciated the Jew. Religion has become the cancer that eats out the capacity of the Jew to feel. So he comes out, he sees his wife or his daughter or his sister who needs nothing more than for him to stop and stoop down and hold her and tell her that he loves her and that he'll always love her, but he can't even love anymore. He can only think in terms of halachic questions. Is this permitted or is this forbidden? Says Bialik, that's what became of Jews in Eastern Europe and that's when Bialik became a Zionist. This has to stop, he said. We're going to go to a new place. We're not going to build a Jewish state. We're going to build a new kind of a Jew. We're going to build a new kind of a Jew who, first of all, won't hide. He will step out from behind the caskets and he will kill those people. And in the worst case scenario, if he can't stop them, he'll die trying. And if he's alive at the end, he will stay with his wife or his sister or his daughter and hold them. Now what Bialik didn't understand was that those people who today are the most similar to the ones he was trying to become unlike. The settlers, the right-wing religious Zionists, the people who spend their lives in yeshivot, are the ones who are the most, most per capita, most represented in the highest echelons of the Israeli army. They are the ones who are the most highly represented in the upper echelons of Jewish studies in Israel's greatest universities. They are the ones who can most clearly articulate why they think there needs to be a Jewish state. Some of you may disagree with their politics. I don't agree with all of their politics. But that they have produced a vital, vibrant, and in many respects, beautiful way of life, though again, not all of the politics are my cup of tea, is something that Bialik could not have foreseen. Bialik could also not have foreseen that the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those who bought into his program and left the religious world behind are the ones who don't understand any of the literary illusions of the very poetry that he wrote. Bialik could not have imagined in 1904-1905 that moving away from the religion of Eastern Europe would have led Israelis to become what Hillel Halkins called Goyim Dovrei Vrit, Hebrew-speaking Goyim, or Hebrew-speaking non-Jews, even though, of course, they're technically Jewish. But they know so little about their heritage and so little about their culture that they, today, when asked, why does this whole thing matter, don't have a tremendous amount to say. 
There was an ideology that the Jew, the new Jew emerging in Palestine and then Israel would become this new person because she and he would work the ground. They would work the earth, work the soil in the Jewish state. But Jews haven't worked the soil in decades. Until the Intifada, we hired Arabs to do it. And since the Intifada, when Arabs aren't allowed in, we hired Thai, work, hired Thai workers and other migrant workers to do it. There was the ideology of the Jewish soldier, the Jew who was as proud to man the fire line as she or he is to man the fields or the factories or the whatever, the Jew who was perhaps most eloquently represented in Nathan Alterman's a very famous poem, Magasha Kesef, The Silver Platter in which this couple is described almost like the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai as the future of the Jewish people, and they fall down dead at the end of the poem with a tremendous sense of pride on the part of the, po of the poet. But Israelis are tired of that kind of pride. Israelis are tired of the kind of pride that leads your kids to have to go off to the army. There's something very noble about it from afar. Something very harrowing about it up from near. And even, by the way, when there was literally physically no danger involved, and in this particular case, I'll take the case of my daughter, to whom I'll return a little bit later in these remarks, who's 20 years old, so that if we had not left America, she'd be a junior at a campus just like this, having to decide, I suppose, each day what to wear, gets up every day and has to make no decision about what to wear. Because there's a uniform to wear and a base to get to and a post to man and all summer long, as, and she's in the intelligence corps, which means that I have actually no idea what she does. It's actually a perfect job for a 20-year-old girl because it's actually illegal to speak to your parents. So um, our daughter and we have found it actually a perfect match. How was your day, honey? I could tell you, but I'd have to shoot you. Uh, you know, so uh, that's very sweet, dear. Would you pass the salad dressing, please? But in any event, to watch her eyes over the course of this summer, when she spent day and night and day and night in front of whatever she was doing in the underground cement bunker where she stationed in Tel Aviv in the intelligence corps, coming home once every 10 days, sleeping 24 hours, getting dressed and going back, coming home by the end of the summer with mono, actually. And then at the end of the summer, when it was clear we'd lost the war, sitting as people were sitting in our living room and our dining room and talking about how it was this failure and that failure and an intelligence failure. And then I would look over and watch her face, after she'd slaved away all summer long doing whatever she'd been asked to do, and hear her parents' friends, and frankly her parents too, talking about the intelligence failure. And then I realized at the end how cruel that was. What does it mean to be 20 years old and to sit in your parents' living room and have your parents and their friends talk about you as a failure? Now nobody meant Talia Gordas. And nobody in their right mind would think that she had anything to do with the failure or if it had been a great success, that it would have been her success. She's part of an enormous operation of tens of thousands of kids her age who pull this thing off and who are commanded by people a lot older than they are who, it didn't work. But what's it like to be 20 years old? To not get to pick what you do? To work day and night for virtually nothing? when she has no interest in a, in, a, in a career in the army, it's all service, and to feel yourself as part of an enterprise that lost. You look in my daughter's eyes at moments like that, and you see that even non-combat positions take from these kids an extraordinary price. 
And so Israelis have given up on the idea of working the land, and Israelis have given up on the idea of the silver platter, the Magash HaKesef. Israelis have given up on a variety of other ideologies that we once thought would carry the day. There was a left wing that wanted it to be peace. That was their ideology. Peace at all costs. The problem is peace with whom? You have to make peace with somebody. Israel tried, many Israelis believe, by, make, by getting out of Gaza in 2005, and the results have not been particularly satisfactory. And even when the, the, and the left would have been asked, so, but in, even if you get peace, living in this part of the world is not going to be the easiest place in the world to live. Why do this? What's the reason? To make peace is not enough of a reason to live there. Because you can have peace in Santa Barbara. You can have peace in Washington, D.C. You can have peace in London, and in Zurich, and in Copenhagen, and in lots of other places where Jews live reasonably decent lives, where you don't pay the cost in tension and in blood and in threat and in nervousness that Israelis pay. So that's enough of a reason. I remember, by the way, this summer when the uh, war casualties started to mount. And those of us who didn't have any children in combat positions, because I got a daughter who was in the army but not in a combat position, and a son who's in 12th grade will be in a combat unit next year, but he's not in one this year, who felt sitting in Jerusalem, you've got to do something. And one day we heard that a kid named Michael Levin, I'm sure you read about him, a kid named Michael Levin from Philadelphia had been killed. He was a paratrooper. And there was a notice on the news he was killed and whatever, and he was going to be buried in Jerusalem the next day. It coincidentally was Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. My wife and I looked at each other. I knew we were both thinking exactly the same thing. He was what's called the Chayal Bodeid, a, long, a lone soldier. It means he made Aliyah by himself. His parents were in Philadelphia. His sisters were in Philadelphia. They would obviously come for the funeral, but he was there all by himself. He paid the ultimate price. We looked at each other, and we were thinking exactly the same thing. We've got to go to that funeral. So we went to that funeral, and I'll say more about it a little bit later. But there's an honor guard at every Israeli funeral, other 18 and 19-year-old kids who line up while the speeches and the eulogies are given, and at the end, fire three volleys into the air and then march off, and that week went to the next funeral. And you look in the eyes of these 18-year-old kids who are going from one funeral of a kid their age to another funeral of a kid their age, and again, you ask yourself, if you'd put a microphone in one of them and said, do you know why you're here? Do you know why this matters? Can you say something to yourself or to your friends or to your children one day about why or whether this is a price worth paying? What I asked myself as I watched these kids, some of whom literally don't even shave yet, was I'm not sure. And that I propose to you is where the sobriety of contemporary Israeli life comes from. It comes from the recognition that we live in a part of the world which is never, ever going to be an easy place to live. We live in a part of the world which will never have the idyllic drive that I just had with my friend who drove me up from L.A. today to UCSB, riding along the coast, no checkpoints, no enemy territory over the next set of hills, just one more set of beautiful mountains, one more set of beautiful trees, or an idyllic-looking community. We're never going to have that. Not in a year and not in a decade and probably not in five decades. As long as I live and probably as long as my children live, that will simply never happen. And therefore, to tough it out and to stay there with all of the cost that it is going to entail means that I've got to be able to articulate for myself why this is worth it.
Why, quite frankly, it is worth it to move to Israel, even if it entails putting my own children's lives in danger, which we didn't really think it would because it was right after Oslo and Camp David, and we thought peace was at hand. Barak promised us. But what are you going to do? He was a little bit wrong. But we, would have, we haven't left, and we could have left, and we've stayed. How do we explain to ourselves, how do our kids explain to each other, and how do other Israelis explain one to the other why this is worth it? In an ideological age, Israelis knew what to say. In post-ideological Israel, which is what we had until July 2006, people by and large didn't know what to say. The right saw its ideology crumble when we got out of Gaza. The left saw its ideology crumble when the Palestinians refused to negotiate. People like Altermans have seen their ideology crumble as Israeli parents are no longer so thrilled about their children serving in the IDF and taking on those kinds of dangers. Every ideology you can point to has dropped one by one by one, and Israelis were inching towards an era in which it didn't matter that you didn't have an ideology because we were coming towards the good life. Tel Aviv high-tech firms were replacing the draining of the Hula Swamp. If in 1930 the people at the cutting edge of society were draining swamps and building security barriers, then in 2005 the people at the cutting edge of Israeli societies are rebuilding all of those high-tech startups that had crumbled a little bit when high-tech dropped and is now climbing right back. We were becoming an industrial society like any other, which is fine as long as you don't pay a price higher than any other. But what we recognized in 2006, what we learned the month before last, was that we are never going to have that kind of a cost-free existence. And therefore, the challenge to Israelis these days is to begin to reinvent the ideological questions. The challenge is to really begin to ask, what kind of a country do we want to be? If we are back in the business of remaking the Jew, what kind of a Jew do we want to be? Do we have an image of what a Jew should know? Do we have an image of how a Jew should act? Do we have an image of what, it should, what the difference between being an Israeli and being a Hebrew-speaking Danish person ought to be? What should make this society so different, I would say, so much better that the price is worth paying? Those are the kinds of questions that Israelis have not asked for a long time. And those kinds of questions demand a re-engineering of the educational system, a re-engineering of the youth groups, a re-engineering of higher education in Israel, a re-engineering of society from its very foundations up, which is something that we're going to have to undertake now, but that we have not thought about in a very long time. And that, I think, is the explanation for why, as people were singing Hatikva, they were singing, but they weren't singing. While they were singing, O Lo Avdatikvatenu, our hope is not yet lost, but not really singing it because they were really wondering, is the hope still alive? And the challenge to Israeli leadership, I believe, in the coming weeks and months, is going to be to prove to Israelis and to convince Israelis that there is very good reason for that hope, yes, to stay alive. What's the reason for that? I want to take you now from Carmiel to a few other places, just a few very quick snapshots of the last few weeks, at least of my life, to give you a sense at the end of the day, for me personally, why that hope cannot be allowed to die. The day that the fighting stopped, purely coincidentally, my wife and I left for Spain for a, an anniversary trip. It was a big one, a multiple of something big. So it meant just the two of us, no children anywhere in sight. And we went to Spain for a couple of weeks, and we toured around all, all around Andalusia, and made our way eventually to Cordoba and Granada, places which in the Middle Ages had been the epitome of Jewish life, where there is now nothing. 
nothing. The occasional monument, an old room that's been taken over by the church, but that you know used to be the synagogue where you can pay a, a couple of euros and go in and take a look, but there's nothing Jewish alive at all in Cordoba or Granada or Seville. Nothing. Not a synagogue, not a store, not a shop, not a minion to say Kaddish, nothing. And then you come back to Sukkot. And the day after Carmiel, you get in the car with the kids and you travel along a little further to the west in the Galilee and you come to a city called Pekin, which is a little, a tiny little town which is about three quarters Druze, a little bit less than a quarter Christian, a smattering of Muslims, and a Jew. There's been continuous Jewish habitation, continuous Jewish residence in the town of Pekin since the Second Temple period. For 2,000 years, there's always been, always been Jews living in Pekin, and there's one left. And we got to Pekin, my wife is a tour guide, so I kind of get the up and, you know, sort of the, the low down before we get there. And we went to the synagogue in Pekin, which she told me, don't worry, it's, it's locked up, you can't get in. It's sort of, she laughed and said, like Cordova, you know, there's nothing there anymore, but you'll see the synagogue. And we got there, and everybody's holding up, there's a lot of people outside, and everybody's holding up 100 shekel notes, the long way up. And I thought this was some new Kabbalistic custom that I was unfamiliar with. You know, you take out a 100 shekel note, you wave it in front of the door, and it turns into a 10,000 shekel note or something. I don't know. So I was about to do the same thing. You know, there's a lot of Jewish customs. I don't know. I figure if everybody's holding up a 100, but then I forgive me. You might as well know what you're doing. So I said to somebody, trying not to sound entirely stupid, um, what are these people actually doing? He said, they're looking at the doors. I said, oh, yes, of course. What does that mean? And then he showed me that on the hundred shekel note, the picture in the background is the doors of the synagogue in Pekin. Because Pekin was a city that was researched by Yitzhak Ben-Svi, and each Israeli note is dedicated to one important personality. The hundred shekel note is dedicated to Yitzhak Ben-Svi, so it has some of his writings in very small calligraphy, and among other things, it has a few symbols of the town of Pekin, where among them, these very interesting synagogue doors. And people were showing their kids, look, see the, see the bill, see the doors? They're exactly the same thing. Because when you go to a country, and the currency has the picture of the synagogue of a place where Jews have lived uninterruptedly for 2,000 years, and you can show that to your kid, that is your way of saying to your kid, this is home. There's no place else in the world where you can point to the currency of the country and say to your kid, this door is on this bill because this is the town where Jews have lived uninterruptedly for 2,000 years. And if you ask yourself, well, what's happening now that this one old lady is getting on in years, People are beginning, Jewish people are beginning to buy property here and there, and three or four families are apparently about to move in, simply as a matter of principle to make sure that the chain goes on. Or, or later in the day when we drove from Kein to that Hula Reserve, which I mentioned to you where they used to drain the swamps, and now there's lots of bird sanctuaries and so forth. You may recall that before the disengagement, there were people who had orange ribbons opposed to the disengagement, and blue ribbons in favor of the disengagement, and so forth. And uh, I wrote about that in the book extensively, about how we decided which color ribbons we were going to have on our car, and so on and so forth. won't go into that now. And there we were in the middle of the Hula Swamp, now the Hula Na Nature Reserve, and there's a father there with his orange ribbons still tied to his knapsack, which strikes me as a little bit in your face since the disengagement's a year and a half over. I personally get the orange ribbons. Whatever was right back then 
whatever, not my cup of tea. And I was just about to get a little bit annoyed with him just for being so overtly political in a nature reserve when I hear him talking to his seven or eight-year-old son and saying, those are the mountains of Ephraim that you read about here in the Torah, and these are the mountains here, you look over there, and this is the river that we read about there, teaching his kid that the book that that kid makes his own describes this land in a way that no other book does. Another way of saying that you're home. And I mentioned to you before that my wife and I decided to go to Michael Levin's funeral because it seemed that it was just wrong, to us at least, it seemed wrong to live in Jerusalem and let this 19-year-old boy get buried by himself with his parents because none of their family and, you know, larger family and friends were going to be there. What I didn't tell you was that we got to the funeral about an hour early and couldn't get anywhere near it. Of course, 3,000 people thought the same thing. And in the bearing sun of Tisha B'Av in the middle of, I guess it was July, the beginning of August in 2006, I think it was the end of July, had to walk up the hill in the blazing sun, dripping with sweat. 3,000 people did it. Because Michael Levin chose to make that place his home and paid the ultimate price. So when I think about 10,000 people getting together to watch dancing in Carmiel, when I think about the 100 shekel note and people showing their children how Jews have been here for 2,000 years and it's on the bill and look, here's the real door. And when I think about the father in the Hula Nature Reserve showing his kids the, to- the, the rivers and the mountains and teaching him where they're mentioned in the Torah. And when I think about 3,000 people coming out for the funeral of a kid they never met or never heard of until earlier the day before. I have a sense that people still at their very core, though they articulated very differently one from the other, understand that this is a place that we can call home in a place, in a way that we can't call any other place home. And what I try to do in the book, after which this afternoon's lecture is named, this book, Coming Together, Coming Apart, is to try to explain what it is about this place that makes it home like no other place can be. What I try to do in the book is point to those things that even as a fractious society as Israel's is in ways that are scarcely describable, in the face of all of that divisiveness, what it is that still holds us together in ways that transcend words. And with your permission, what I would like to do by way of beginning to conclude is to read for you a passage that comes from a section towards the end of the book, which I think will hopefully capture for you what it is that, at least in my mind, makes the homeness of Israel so clear, a homeness which I hope Israelis will rediscover and reinvent and redebate and re-ideologize in the months and years to come, as we come to terms with the fact that we live in a land in which we will always need to be able to articulate why we're there, why the price is important, and as we hopefully restore ourselves to the ideological society in addition to the successful society. But this was written before the war, and I, with your permission, would like to read just a few pages uh, and conclude with it. Wait till you see her in a uniform, my friend Asher says to me one Shabbat morning in shul, knowing that Talia's draft date is approaching. You see your kid come home in that green, and there are no words. Strangely, though, when I see her all dressed in her uniform and ready to go, her brand new backpack stuffed to the limit, I'm proud of her, but for me, it's not one of those memorable moments. 
I give her a hug and watch her walk out the door. She and her mother heading for the car as Elisheva gets ready to drive her to the base and to the beginning of basic training. And I just hope she'll be okay. A couple of days later, I have to go to the States for a very quick trip. About 10.30 in the, meeting, in the evening on the way to the airport, I call Tali's cell phone, figuring that by now she's got to be done. I'll see how she is and say goodbye. Maybe she'll want something from America. But there's no answer. Just her bubbly voice in that Hebrew that sounds thoroughly Israeli, as native as can be. Hi, you've reached Talia's voicemail. Leave me a message and I'll talk to you soon. Hi, it's Abba, I tell her. I'm going to the States. Where are you? It's 10.30 at night. Don't you get any time off? My flight's not until 1 in the morning and I'll have my phone on until then. Call me, I love you. But she doesn't call. I think about calling her again, but I know that the last thing she needs is a father to pester her. Maybe she's talking with friends. Maybe she's sleeping. Midnight passes and one o'clock comes, but there's no call. The plane pushes back from the gate and starts the slow taxi to the runway. I turn off my phone. Less than 48 hours later, I'm back. The plane touches down to Tel Aviv and instinctively I turn on my cell. One message. Hi, Abba, it's Tali. Sorry I missed your call. We didn't get back to our barracks until after, after one in the morning. We were out at the firing range practicing shooting at night. I'm tired now, exhausted. Hope you're having a safe trip. I guess you'll get this when you get back. Love you. Since then, she's come home and gone a few times. Now we've got a routine. Every couple of weeks, she comes home on Friday afternoon, tosses her filthy uniforms in the wash, takes a shower and sleeps. And sleeps. Hangs out for a while with some friends and then sleeps some more. It seems we hardly see her during her visits. She needs to sleep to catch up with friends and to get back to bed before she has to head back to the base on Sunday morning. She could take the bus from our house to the central bus station and another bus to Tel Aviv and yet another from there to the base in the center of Jerusalem where she's stationed. But if I drive her to the bus station in Jerusalem, I can save her at least the first of the three bus trips in some time. She can sleep a few extra minutes. So that's what we do each time. What time do you want to leave in the morning, I ask her. I need to make the 6.15 bus to get the base on time, so can we leave the house at 6? Sure, should I wake you? I'll set an alarm for 5.40, but just poke your head in to make sure I'm awake. 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm on my desk grabbing some quiet time for work before the house comes to life. It's still dark outside, but the morning is crisp and beautiful, so I have the window open. Without many cards on the roads yet, it's virtually silent outside. After a few minutes, there's a distant sound, which I know is the muezzin chanting out his call to worship from one of the mosques in the old city. And a short while later, the church bells from the Dormition Abbey on Mount Zion begin to chime. And a few minutes after that, it's the quiet chatter of the men making (coughs) making their way to Slichot, the early morning penitential prayers that are being recited each morning now that Rosh Hashanah is just days away. A first ray of light begins to creep over the rooftops and trees outside the window. I look at the clock. It's time to make sure that Tali's awake. I tiptoe up the stairs and open her door. She's in bed, stirring, but not quite awake, the radio playing softly in the background. With her blanket pulled up to her chin, her face looks different. And I'm suddenly struck that she's all grown up. She is, after all, older than Elisheva and I were when we met. We brought her here seven years ago, a little girl, a few months shy of her bat mitzvah. She had two quiet years here, two glorious years to get used to a new life. And then in the past five years, 
Just as she was about to start high school, she and her brothers watched as we slid into war, as we managed to survive a war, now as we are exiting a war. And my little girl is all grown up. You awake, I whisper. Yeah, thanks, she says and sits up. The blanket drops an inch or two. And there, peeking out of the top of the blanket, pressed against her shoulder, is her stuffed animal. It's Curious George, or Curious, as we've called him since he joined the family when she got him 19 years ago, the week she was born. On the chair next to her, her uniform waits, ready for a new day. On her floor, her backpack ready to go. And in the closet, I know, is her gun. Yet peering out from under the blanket, more than a bit worn, but still soft, there he is, curious. I think about saying something funny, but there's nothing funny to say. There's an M16 in the closet, and there's curious. Asher was right. There are no words. See you downstairs in a few minutes, I whisper, hoping she can't hear my voice beginning to crack or see the tear beginning to well at the bottom of my eye. A few minutes later, she's down in her uniform. Ready? Yep, she says, slinging her, shoulder, her gun over her shoulder, let's go. It's not light yet in Jerusalem, and the city is still mostly asleep. Sitting next to me in the front seat, Tali leans her head back against the headrest and starts to doze. I turn the radio off, figuring she can use the quiet in a few more minutes of shut-eye. It's still a gorgeous city, Jerusalem. Wounded, to be sure, but recovering. The rising sun begins to reflect off the stone all around us, and there's a golden hue to the morning. It's the hue I used to love when we visited, the hue I hated to leave behind when we left, and now it's the color of home. I take the final left turn towards the bus station, and Tali's awake. There's a spot right next to the curb, and I slow the car to a stop. Thanks, Abba. Love you. Have a safe trip. Thanks. Love you, too. And with that, she's out. She goes to the back of the car, takes out her pack, swings the gun over her head, closes the door, puts on the pack, and waves goodbye. It's just a couple of minutes shy of 6.15, and though the city is still quiet, the sidewalk is packed. Soldiers, dozens of them, perhaps a hundred, all in green, are waiting in line to get into the bus station. Tall soldiers and short soldiers, men and women, white skin and darker skin, religious soldiers and secular soldiers, soldiers who were probably orange and soldiers who were probably blue, now all in green, seasoned officers and brand new recruits. Tali walks towards the mass of green, and in a minute, I can't find her. I start to pull the car away and, turning my head, see her one last time as she walks through security and blends in with the rest of the crowd. For the first time since she put that uniform on, I feel like crying because now there really are no words, because I miss her when she's not around. And maybe because I'm a little worried about her, about all those kids who have to protect this still-shrinking country. And perhaps I'm feeling the way I do because of Curious, still lying there all alone on her bed at home, because there's something about Curious that means that she shouldn't have to be doing this. But mostly I think the power of the moment stems from how easily and how confidently she blended into that crowd, knowing what she has to do, even wanting to do it. She knows that this country's in for a few more rough years, but she's willing, wholly without fanfare, to do her share to tough it out. And it's because she's totally comfortable here, comfortable in a way that Elisheva and I never will be. 
I pull the car away from the curb, slide into traffic, get into the left lane, beginning to make my way to a house that I know will seem a little empty when I get there. As the bus station recedes in the rearview mirror, though, I reassure myself that it's okay. She hasn't really left home, I remind myself. She is home. Home in a way that she couldn't be anywhere else. And so are we. Thank you very much.